Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm doing great, Glenn. Glad to be with you. It's good to have you with me. I am Glenn Lowry, and this is The Glenn Show, formerly of BloggingHeads.tv and now of GlennLowry.Substack.com and at our YouTube channel, YouTube forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. Uh, you can subscribe to the show at the Substack, and if you do, you'll see our weekly post on Mondays instead of Fridays, and you'll see them without ads. Uh, so that's what we're doing here at the Glenn Show, and I'm with Stephen Rhodes. Stephen is professor of politics at the University of Virginia, um, and he's the author of the book, The Economist's View of the World. And then you have The Quest for Well-Being. This is the new subtitle uh, of the book, Stephen? Yes, I, I wanted to make sure people thought it wasn't just all economics. It's kind of two cheers and one boo for economics. And the, the boo's about the way in which I don't think they adequately th think about the quest for well-being. Well, let's talk about that. I'm an economist, uh, and you are a political scientist. And I discovered your book a long time ago. In fact, I think it was one of your former students, uh, Stephen Tellis, back in the 90s. Uh, yeah. late 90s, who said, you have to read this book, you have to read this book, because Stephen, being a student of yours as a political scientist, Stephen Tellis, now of Johns Hopkins University, someone who has appeared here at the Glenn Show in the past to talk about politics, uh, and a, a good friend of mine. And uh, he and I would always go head-to-head -head economist vis-a-vis -vis political scientist in our different, you know, approaches to thinking about analyzing different kind of problems and situations. Uh, and he said, you know, uh, there is a lot to learn from economists, even though economists are not entirely right thinking. And uh, he called your book to my attention as a kind of acknowledgement that there were there was a lot that economists brought to the table that others should take seriously. So you, well, say, two, you say two cheers and one boo. Yeah. Well, the two cheers are... Um First of all, I think uh, an understanding of microeconomics, which is the most interesting for policy, I think they are, have more settled stuff that's worth thinking about right. than macro. And uh, and it's, um, you know, I, I begin with just concepts because uh, then it gets into a little more controversial stuff, but the, the concepts are uh, opportunity cost, uh, marginalism, and economic incentives. And it seems to, I'm going to say a little something about marginalism, because that's, I think, the one that's a little surprising. Um, well, hold on, hold on. Let, let's yeah, go ahead, let, sure. Let's, no, let's take them one at a time. I mean, I, I, I just want to um, uh, underscore your primary distinction between micro and macroeconomics, and you'll be talking mainly about microeconomics. Uh, Correct, yeah. That, that the... Uh, policy relevance of economics for macro type. These are uh, fiscal, uh, monetary policy, unemployment and inflation are less clear cut in your mind than are the po policy insights that apply to uh, uh, micro decisions. No, to macro. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, un unemployment and so on. Macro. I I'm into the details. I, uh you know, if we had everybody unemployed, but they were doing things that are lousy and not much good to society and weren't doing it very effectively, that means the micro is very, not very good. So I'm, I'm focusing on the micro. Uh, I want to sounds, mention, yeah, go ahead, Steve. It sounds more boring, and I could explain when, when it's the right time a little more about 
marginalism or anything or anything else else on your mind? No, no. I want to talk about the concepts, uh, opportunity cost, marginalism, and incentives. Very important, and I thought very uh, useful to have a non-economist uh, articulate these basic things. Uh, but I just first wanted the audience to know that the book was published originally quite a while ago, uh, and has now been reissued in a in a new edition in a way as a tribute to the lasting significance and impact that uh, that the book has had. So so congratulations. When was the first uh, appearance of, of well, well, 1984. So this is I the 30, 35th anniversary. And the first time I've had a book that's uh, marketed well, I think, and and I'm well up in my age. So I guess you could say I'm a late, late bloomer. <laughs> uh, you know, it took me a while to write my best book, which this is my best book, I think. And is it used as a text or a supplement at the undergraduate yeah, level? Yeah, no, the first one, first one sold uh, 25,000 copies for an academic book. That's pretty darn good. It was the top 1% of all Cambridge University Press sales since World War II. So they were eager to bring it out again and, and with more marketing and, and a really thorough change. A lot of differences in this one. So what motivates you as a uh, political scientist to undertake to explain to others about how economists think? Well, first of all, I think economics is, is a more significant discipline than others in the social science. I mean, they, they talk more about political issues and public policy. Sociologists might, they're getting more into things like marriage that are important. And, uh, They've always been interested in criminology. But, you know, if you said, well, uh, let's get a social scientist to kind of take a big picture of what we're doing and how we could do it better, you wouldn't go to a sociologist or a psychologist. Psychologists might, you know, set them down on a couch and talk to them about what they're doing and how, to, how society affects that. But the economists are really one of the reasons a lot of people don't like them. You know, they're really cocky. They they, <laughs> they have this uh, welfare economics, which they say, you know, it doesn't mean welfare as in welfare state. It means welfare of state and human beings. And I'm going to tell you how we can change policy and make us all happier, or, or at least think we're happier, more satisfied, getting more of what we want. And uh, this is very ambitious. So a lot of people say, well, why do they get the... Nobel Prize. What about sociology? What about psychology? And I must say, psychology is doing really interesting stuff these days. But, but economics is the one, you know, here's one way to think about it. In my department of economics, not my department because I'm a political scientist, but in the economics department at UVA, there are individual courses on education, on poverty, on uh, antitrust, on education. Uh, there's about four more that where there are people whose life life is spent studying these issues and what we now have and and why we have it and how we might make it better. And I don't think any of the other social scientists do that, including mine. Uh, my political science, it's wrapped up in process and trying to predict process, which is very hard, as the last couple of elections have suggested. Uh, so I don't think that's... Um, I, I just wouldn't want to survey political science. I think it's all over the place. And what's nice about economics, you can pretty much count on, if someone's had an introductory course in economics, they've learned about markets and supply and demand and why it's important to think about markets, close, uh, how they come together and 
increase your price and a wage, and uh, and also how you can muck things up without intending to by interfering in a haphazard way in what markets have come up with. So uh, it's and the other thing is economists are very sensible. They tend to be middle of the road. You know, people think they're very conservative because they're not as left wing as most academics or as most social scientists, but they're. If, if you get studies of them, they'll say there's twice as many Democrats as Republicans identify. But they uh, they tend to be moderates and they tend to be interested in facts and what's your argument and what's your evidence. And I, I think they're generally thought to have the best methods if you're doing statistical stuff. And uh, I at least have, was initially interested in normative things and figuring out what, what we could do to make things better in society and public policy. And economics was, was there in front of me. You know, that's what they claim to do, microeconomists. And I, I had one course as an undergraduate, but really wanted to get more. And it was very fascinating. And then I wandered into a political philosophy course and said, wow, this is another way to think about what's good and what's what we should do. So it's kind of a combination of, of the way I was educated that led to this book. But the economists are always worth listening to. They're smart, 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 and they have interesting things about it to say about a series of, of policies. And some of these are using these concepts that I mentioned. Now, you're, you're preaching to the choir here and extolling the virtues of economics as a discipline, because, you know, that's what I have always thought as well. But we are not, a, we are not uh, you know, there are other reactions to economics as a discipline, some much less welcoming <laughs> and friendly. Uh, they call people who extol the virtues of markets, who talk about how prices are a remarkable vehicle for allocating resources and balancing the relative efficiencies of different alternative activities, uh, who extol the virtue of property incentives and the seeking of profit that cause such people neoliberals, Steve. Yeah, at, at best. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, there's, there's some academics like even less than that. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, there's no question about it. The one thing that, that makes economists pretty much alike, if you, you tell me you've had an interactive course in economics, I know you've, you've learned some things. If it's an introductory course in politics or political science, I don't know what you've taken. Some people will start with the founding fathers and spend half the half the uh, semester on the Constitution. Others will be pretty much the last thirty years, and mainly public opinion and interest groups. So you don't know what the, what they've got in economics. You know what someone learned. If you want to build on that, you can do it. And uh, as for what people don't like about it, it's, it's partly they have so much influence. You know, why do you, why is there a council of economic advisors and not a council of sociological advisors? You know, why are you guys so good? And not only that, economists think they're so good. They think they're better than the other, than the other uh, disciplines. And on the whole, as I've said, I think they are on the whole. I wouldn't want to write a book on any of the others. They'd be all over the place. I wouldn't know how to organize it. Uh, but economics, as you say, let me just say a word about markets. People usually want to talk about markets in a favorable way. They think they're conservative. Therefore, I want to begin by saying, you know, Paul Krugman has a text. Now, he's well left of most economists, and many of your listeners know of him. He writes regularly for the New York Times. In his textbook, he says, 
uh, markets are a remarkable way to, to bring, th- uh, bring different people and different products together via prices. And he goes on to say, it's pretty amazing the way they work. So lots of time, my, uh, my critics, my friends in political science will say, those economists, they think markets are a religion. And I therefore quote them, you know, remarkable recruitment, amazing. Well, it's not quite a religion, they'd say, but that's pretty good if, if, if you think they're that good. And, and most economists think they are, whether they're liberal or conservative. Another example would be um, Joseph Stiglitz. Wrote a, wrote a, he agrees with a lot of things that Bernie Sanders agrees with. Uh, and, but he wrote an op-ed, and then in a short op-ed, he said, I'm not a socialist. I think that all the successful economies, all the successful economies use private property and markets. Wow. Now, how many people who are left of center know that, that economists who agree with them in a lot of public policy think that well of markets. So I, I want to begin by trying to convince people that whatever their politics are, I think they should know more about markets before they say they don't like them. I think once you've seen this insight that uh, when people respond to a common set of prices and make their own decisions about how to balance their costs and benefits given those prices, once you've seen the insight that when they do that, they're also, in effect, coordinating their activities with one another. Yeah. They're balancing their costs and benefits against themselves, not only against the prices. Yeah. And, and you can do that simply through the price system. You don't have to go door to door, collect all the individual information, <laughs> give all the instructions. I mean, let's be concrete. Suppose you want to reduce emissions of environmental pollutants. There are a hundred million different sources of potential emissions. Each one has its own story to tell about what the costs are of altering its activities. You want to somehow reduce emissions, but you want to do it in a way that is efficient. Prices allow that to happen in a a truly uh, uh, stunning way. And, And I think when you've seen and appreciated that insight, it's pretty hard to forget. Yeah, I, I think it is. And let me, uh, I don't know if you got a chance to look at my, to, to talk about uh, sawdust. But, you know, I begin by saying, you know, markets, what do you do with uh, markets? And if you were an administrator, how would you do it? Who would get all the iron? Who would get the steel? And then I, I simply declare what, what Mao, Chairman Mao said in China. He said, I got a lot of steel, but I forgot it doesn't travel by itself. I don't have enough transportation. You know, in a market system, the prices would adjust and you'd, you'd, <laughs> when the steel started to accumulate, someone would, have, would get the idea to transport it where it belongs. Anyway, so what I say at the beginning, I say instead of uh, talking about steel, so I'm, I'm going to talk about sawdust. And then put the sawdust, who cares? What is there even a market for it? And then I go through what an economist found when he went to Vermont in the summer and he... Uh, he was asked. He was asked the dairy farmer, "Why is milk so expensive these days? It's twice as much as last summer." And he said, "Oh, all my inputs are going up. The price of milk is doubled, and I mean the price of sawdust is doubled." And and the guy, the economist, said, "What sawdust have to do with dairy farmer?" He said, "Oh, we use it all the time. Our cows produce much more milk when they're comfortable lying down, and they love sawdust." <laughs> So, so this administrator is probably shocked right from the start. I didn't know that. So I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll cut the price of milk in schools. We'll, we'll make it more, because that's important. The kids got to get those vitamins and we'll, we'll give them not just last year's allocation, but something more. 
And then the, the administrator is going to hear from the, the um, people in the building industry because they're going to say, we know our costs are going up. And as you say, homeless is a big problem. And our costs are going to go up if we don't get as much sawdust as we used to have. And people say, what sawdust have to do with building? Well, it turns out that, uh, the, the particle boards, which are cheaper than lumber and therefore used a lot in low-income housing, have a lot of sawdust in them. So I didn't mean to increase uh, low-income housing by giving more milk to the school kids, but now you tell me that's what I've done. Yeah, that's what you've done. And then, of course, the housewives who use it for mulch are going to start complaining, well, who said these are more important than I am? And you keep looking at it, and they're used in charcoal briquettes, sawdust, and used in all kinds of things you wouldn't think. They're even used in dashboards as a filler. And I think before he gets to iron and steel, this administrator is going to throw up his hands. I didn't know all this. What do you want me to do? What the economist wants you to do is be a little more modest and start with markets. You may need to adjust them, but realize there's a lot going on. If you change one thing, like the amount of milk to schools, you're going to change all these other things, the prices of all these other things. You ought to think about whether you really want to do that or not. Yeah, uh, we could tell a lot of stories like that. Uh This is a really interesting development. Podcasts have changed the way you get your news, entertainment, politics, everything. They have rewritten the script, literally. Well, there's another exciting development that's rewriting the script, too. It's called Masterworks. Masterworks enables you to diversify your investment portfolio and potentially protected from market volatility by investing in contemporary art. There, the fintech startup, shaking up the alternative investing landscape, letting you build a portfolio of fine art without spending millions of dollars. Basquiat, Picasso, Warhol. Invest in paintings by iconic artists like these with Masterworks. Their industry-leading research team has created the first and only platform where anyone can buy and trade shares of paintings, giving you the same access enjoyed by some millionaires and billionaires for generations. And Glenn Show listeners get priority access to their latest offerings at masterworks.art forward slash Glenn. That's masterworks.art slash Glenn. So join a new generation of investors at masterworks.art slash Glenn. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. But let's go back to the concept. So yeah. opportunity costs, marginalism, and incentives. Mm-hmm. But talk about opportunity costs. I mean, I think economics is unpopular in many quarters because we're the bearers of bad news. And the nature of that bad news often takes the form of, sorry, there's no free lunch. 
There's no free lunch. That's exactly Sorry. Right. Sorry to have to tell you there's no free lunch. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's like you, you want to give all the sawdust there. You're not going to have any to give over here. Uh, and there's no free lunch. Of course, that means because somebody's paying for that lunch just because some, some uh, salesman maybe gave it to you hoping you'd buy a timeshare from him. Doesn't mean that's free. It's not free. You've given him your time, which is worth something. Uh, yeah, well, opportunity. I, I try to, to take uh, difficult cases because I, I talk about um, things like, for example, people will get really upset when they find out that an automobile manufacturer has made an automobile less safe than he could have. And they're taken to court and they often get big millions and millions of dollars in compensation if they get burned because the, the, the gas tank was in the rear and so on. It's awful stuff. It's sorry it happens. But the economist says, we don't want to make the autos as safe as we could. Why? Because the mileage would be terrible. They'd be like bumper cars in an amusement park. They're too heavy. The mileage would be terrible. The pollution would be worse. We want to. We have to compromise. Even the how the highway program uh, has to compromise. They take some of that money to give to beautification of the highways. They wouldn't do that if the only thing they cared about was safety. We, that's not our only goal. Maybe in a, in a big war, it's our main goal. But not anything else. There's other things we want in life, and therefore it's hard for people to to uh, to believe that or want to believe that. And I often think that I want to live next to people who think it's hard to believe that. You know, lots of nurses think that way and daycare workers. They don't want to agree that, no, I, I want to keep spending as long as we can save lives. And, and I say, I want you to be my neighbor, <laughs> you know, because cause it's that kind of empathy and caring about human beings that you want. But you've got to realize that the guy who pulls it all together is often influenced by economics because he can't do everything. And um, so I use uh, how you've got to cut corners a little bit on life saving, not cut corners. You always want to make the most effective programs, but you may not take take bumpers, rumble sticks, you know, not sticks. You know, there's rumble sides on the on the road these days. You start to go off the road and your, your car starts to rumble. They've got some rumble stuff down there. So you'll wake up if you're starting to go to sleep. And so it sounds like a great idea. You know, you don't drift off either direction because they've got these rumbles on the major highways. Yeah. Now, one way to think about marginalism in markets is to say, do you want, or you always want to put one of those rumble sticks in every road because they're so effective? And I think you begin to say, no, it's just, there's too many roads. There's too many other ways to save lives. I mean, if there's a lot of traffic, you put the rumble streets, uh, strips in, but if you're going to, uh, if you're talking about a rural place where you go from one town to another, and there's nothing to see for 20 miles. There's very little traffic. There's better ways to save lives than to put rumble strips in. Yeah. So, so what this shows, I think, is that the total benefit of uh, anything, including a rumble strip, is usually higher than the marginal benefit. And a lot of administrators get away with saying, "Oh, our benefits are much." higher than our cost. Look at this rumble strip. We did a, a statistical study and a lot fewer accidents. And the economist always says, what about at the margin? You put those rumble strips where there's the most traffic. I want to know how many people are we going to uh, save if we put it at the low, lower density uh, places. So that's that's a big decision between a marginal profit, uh, marginal uh, benefit 
and an average or a total benefit, it's oh. easy to get the first benefits. Yeah, hold on, I, uh, we, we're sliding from sliding from opportunity cost into marginalism. I want to go back to opportunity cost sure. for a minute. Because the point here, it's just a very simple common sense observation, which is that anything you do, any any activity that you undertake is at the expense of not having done something that you could have done. This is this is what opportunity cost is. It's the foregone opportunity. Right. When you deploy resources to not do the thing that you could have done with those right. resources. And, and that's a cost, even if it's not accounting recorded in the ledger book or anything like that, that's a foregone opportunity. Yeah. And that's ever present. No, there's no choice or action or allocation of resource that you can undertake that doesn't come with the cost yeah. by definition of yeah. foregoing alternative uses of those assets. Yeah, that's uh, important. And I'm glad you, glad you mentioned it. It's, uh, I also bring it up with regard to natural resources. There's one guy who is a... Um, well, maybe you don't want to get, get into another example, but the idea is people who are naturalists tend to put, want to put everything there. Who wouldn't care about clean water? Who wouldn't care about clean air? Right. And who wouldn't care about saving species? But, right. But how many species, how many species in how many locations do we have to save the same species? The current law says you've got to save every species in every location where they clearly are. Well, in Arizona, they wanted to put a new telescope up. And the naturalist said, well, you know, squirrels are running around that area. I don't think they're going to like your telescope. You know, it's not just just uh, getting rid of squirrels or it's one particular location for squirrels to do something, like build a shopping center. That's what the other side always brings up. You want to destroy that beautiful countryside to build another shopping center. And I think it's good to say no sometimes to build a telescope. That's kind of high-minded. Too, just like shaving the environment is. You're trying to understand your understand your world. So anyway, the main point is just what you succinctly said. Yeah, anything you do, whether it's using your time or your money, is going to come by something else you like to do you can't do. You know, we could save a lot of lives on the road if we set a speed limit of 20 miles an hour on the highways. Yeah. Uh, no one would die from crashes. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but it would take a lot longer to get anywhere. Uh, so... The lives saved are coming at the opportunity cost of the time now having to be devoted to travel, which could have been devoted to some other activity. But exactly. someone's going to say here, how can you put a price on a human life? How can you put a, a value on a, a, a biological species that's being exterminated? They're going to question, even if you acknowledge the fact that there are costs involved, they're going to question the implicit valuations that are reflected in the decisions that you make you you well, they are and uh good that they should as long as they as long as they've learned your end of your first point uh but take something how they might do something with valuing reductions in air pollution you can do studies in which you look at the housing costs of two bedroom places 20 minutes from town yeah. where there's a lot of pollution and where there isn't a lot of pollution I mean, that simplifies what the economists do but the point is where there's a lot of pollution it'll be less costly to buy a house. So clever economists can try to figure out what does that suggest is the value of getting rid of that pollution. The value would be, you, your property values at least, would go up more like they are on the other side of town, other things being equal. So there's tricky ways, clever ways economists can do to try to deal with these issues. And at the final analysis, they say, if you don't like cost-benefit analysis, where you put dollar values on the benefit, 
How about cost-effectiveness analysis, where you're simply looking at the best ways to save lives? And then you get into the question, is it more important to save a young life than an old life? And it gets trickier than that. But if you just do cost-effectiveness analysis, you come to the conclusion we spend a lot more money trying to save people in danger from chemicals in the ground or from nuclear accidents than we do saving lives in other ways that would be much more cost-effective. I mean, I saw one physicist trying to make this point where he said, um, if you had everybody in the country have a chest X-ray, everybody, one in a year, one person would die. If you had them live in, uh, what was it, Arizona or die somewhere? from the radiation. Exactly. Good point. Good point. You could write my book better than I did. Uh, <laughs> I have more time writing the book. Die from the radiation. But there's a lot of places you can travel and people live that give you more radiation than that. Uh, living 20, if the, if the, if the nuclear plant doesn't blow up, which it almost never does, uh, if you live 20 miles from it, you'd, you'd kill, kill one person in a lifetime. If the whole population lived there. In other words, people don't understand risks. They don't understand that risk is inevitable. And, and the risks that we pay attention to are often not the ones we would if we knew more. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to that concept that you were beginning to talk about, marginalism. Yeah. Uh, what what do you have to say about that in a book? Well, I think this is the most interesting of the three because economic concepts is so obvious that if, you know, we'll get to that if we'd like, but that, that would help you and have some understanding of that. But marginalism is kind of tricky. Adam Smith had a tough time with it. Because uh, it, Adam Smith wondered, you know, uh, diamonds are so frivolous and water is so necessary for life. Why is it diamonds are more expensive than water? You know, he, he couldn't figure out... The, in use, the value of something, and exchange what the value of something. He was a very bright guy, but the yeah. 19th century economist nailed that one down. But but take something as sens simple, sensible, it seems, as setting priorities. And a lot of localities will do this. They say, well, look, we're doing a lot of different programs. We have a little extra money from the federal government this year, which is true in this year. And so the question is, how should we spend it? Do you think we should put more money into safety programs, education monies, programs, recreation programs? Where should it go? And then overwhelmingly, they're going to come back and say safety. That's why they never want to cut the police and fire, because they, they don't think about the marginal person who may just be sitting at a desk. They think, oh, that's very important. It keeps people alive. So if somebody in that administrator was a sharp thinker, he might say, well, they've, overwhelmingly, they want safety to be our top priority for new funds. And I think we should get rid of unit uh, of the allowing little league baseball players to play on public parks because that can be a very dangerous activity. You know, they get hit in the head. There are more eye injuries for juveniles from being hit in the eye by a baseball than any other athletic activity. People could die when the when they get hit in the chest with a baseball. This is not a safe activity, and we should not be subsidizing it with taxpayers' funds. Now, how do you think that would go over? Not very well. Everybody would say, well, wait a minute. You're going to you say there's something the matter with baseball. Everybody, you know, injuries in any activity a little bit once in a while. So, a little bit, the guy died. I know. I know. But, but we've already covered that, right? We've already covered an opportunity because you can't save everybody. Uh, it's too expensive. But the point is, these things happen very, very rarely. If you think of how rarely they tell. And we're ruining the lives of so many 8, 9, 10-year-old children by saying they can't play baseball. It's just not what people meant to say 
when we ask them, you're not going to get a good answer unless you can phrase the question as marginalism. Should we have this program, which would accomplish this? Or is this a higher program, which would accomplish this and would cost this? If you don't get into the details, like economists always do, you're going to get very bad indications of what the public really thinks about. That's what marginalism is, thinking at the margin. Okay, let's go back. You started with the diamond, the diamond water paradox. Yeah. Use marginalism thinking to explain. So here's the paradox is that water is absolutely necessary for life. Diamonds are uh, a bobble. They're a, to- a yeah. toy. Yeah. You don't need diamonds. You can do without them. And yet, water is cheap, often free. Diamonds are to the user, and diamonds are uh, extremely expensive. How is it that uh, the price of diamonds is so high when the value of water is so great? Yeah. Uh, How do you use marginalism to to account for that? Well, you didn't. You're right. I didn't have time, or probably hope it's just time, or not as not as succinct as you are. Didn't explain why this would happen. It would happen because you have to look at not just what's value in average in total. In total, water is more valuable than than diamonds. But at the margin, if you ask anybody, "Hey, I got a bucket of diamonds over here. I can give you that. I gave you a bucket of water. Which one do you want?" Even if you thought diamonds are frivolous, you'd say, "Give me the bu- diamonds. You know, I could sell them for a bundle." And that's because water is so abundant most of the time. If you're in the desert, you get a, you get a different answer and different marginal benefits and costs. But the point is, that all things, you get, first of all, you've got to think about benefit at the margin. And second of all, you've got to think of costs of getting it. It's so much easier to get a bottle of, bu- bucket of water than to get a bucket of diamonds that the, tice, uh, I mean the, t- the price has to reflect how much more difficult it is. So... Uh, the way markets work is they always are thinking, I mean, they bring together people at the margins. Businesses want high prices, consumers want low prices, they agree in the middle somewhere. And uh, by letting the price system go up and down, there's not great sur- surpluses or great shortages. And don't, don't bring up uh, COVID-19. I know that's different. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually thinking of later in this conversation, maybe mentioning a couple of policy areas. Climate change was going to be one of them and COVID pandemic management was going to be another. But I just want to stick on this thing about uh, thinking at the margin for a minute because, I mean, there, there's some interesting observations here. I mean, one of them is what is the price? The price is the rate at which the commodity is going to trade. How, how is that determined? by balancing the value in use of the next unit of the commodity with the balance in the cost of providing the next unit of the commodity. That's where the market is going to uh, equilibrate, and that's going to determine the price. Price of water is low because the marginal cost of its production and the marginal value of having another unit are low. The total value of the water is great, but the marginal value is low, and that's what's driving the price. On the other hand, diamonds are expensive to produce, and uh, the marginal value of of the diamond in use and and the marginal value of its cost of production are going to be high, and the price is going to be high. So there's no paradox at all once you think about prices as being determined by the balancing of marginal benefits and costs. Exactly. It's it's a marvelous insight, though. If Smith didn't get it, we owe a lot to those 19th century economists who did. I mean, because it it comes up all the time. Um, People say, well, why is it that daycare workers are paid so much less than people who fix our computers? Right. Are Are children less important than computers? And then you got to talk about a lot more people want to take care of children than want to learn how to take how to fix a computer, and 
We need the computers fixed as well as the kids taken care of. And they probably need more education to do that. And, and it takes more of their time. And, and it's not just computers, but if your heating company, if your heating goes out, or your air conditioning goes out, who do you call? The guy who's willing to go into a little cubby hole where the air conditioner is broken, uh, 120 degree heat, and fix the air conditioner so you can be comfortable. Uh, it, you got to think of a whole lot of things before you can figure out whether the prices are right. But it always includes value at the margin and costs of producing that. And that will depend on how many people want to be daycare workers versus how many people want to be air conditioners. Well, this is why people don't like economists, Stephen, because they're going to say, look at uh, athletes and entertainers make a lot more than the people who care for our children or who teach them or whatever. Right. And yet, look at our values. Our values are all screwed up. We, we pay <laughs> the people who teach our children next to nothing. And we pay the people who produce gangster rap a, a huge fortune. Uh, how distorted yeah. are those values? And uh, <laughs> it turns out that the price of labor is not a measure of the value of the labor that is being uh, a total good, value. <laughs> a very good argument to, to look at the the cost side of some of these things that we pay for. We pay for them with our money. Uh, we get some value from Oh, that one I don't get much value. But like well, most old fogies, I, my, my music's the... 40s to the 60s, but uh, <laughs> I realized that uh, when my young guys get old, they're going to think the current music's lousy too, but yeah. Okay, so that was uh, the concept of, um, of marginalism. Now, what, what about the concept of incentives, which is, <clears throat> in my mind, the guts of the matter Yeah, that for economists, we're, we're always talking about the way in which behavior is driven by the incentives that are created by social programs or by the market. Yeah. Um, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think it is pretty, uh, you can get people to think about that pretty easily by saying, uh, look, if you go in a grocery store and steak is doubled, you're going to buy steak, but, but price is doubled and now hamburgers on sale for 10% less, you're, you might very well buy the hamburger. And if somebody says, I thought you like steak more than hamburger. I do, but it's a lot cheaper to buy the hamburger now. And maybe the price of steak will go down and they'll go back and buy that. Uh, that economic incentives, I think they're easier to see in the private sector than in the public sector. I mean, everybody knows I got a budget. I can't buy everything. And they all look for things that give them some satisfaction or pleasure uh, by spending rationally their money. And of course, I, I should say right away, it could be perfectly rational to give some of that money to charity. Economists, uh, they may in practice be money hungry and too uh, interested in uh, the economic side of the world. But in principle, if you think giving to the opera is important and that gives you pleasure, you should be able to give to the opera. And uh, lots of high-minded things, you, uh, economic incentives work too because you wouldn't get, want to give your whole salary uh, but you might want to give an important part because people don't give enough to, just like some people think they don't get enough to daycare. Some people think they don't give enough to what opera singers. Now, what about the athlete making 10 million? He can only make that because there's a whole lot of people want to watch him. And thank God for TV for that. But, uh, you know, I changed, I'm not completely frivolous, but I did change uh, providers of my TV because one of them dropped my, national, my Washington Nationals. I said, no way. I, <laughs> I dropped the whole thing, 150 channels, and went on to, uh, into another 150 channel 
outfit that didn't drop the Nationals. So uh, why does that guy get paid so much? Because there are a lot of guys like me who want to get a favorite team and watch every game, at least the last couple of innings. It's a slow sport, but if you if it's taking too long, you got a newspaper here, you can go back and forth. The point is that ordinary consumers benefit from that guy hitting home runs or he wouldn't make so much because the 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 baseball team couldn't pay him that much unless they're getting that money back. Uh, well, some of them will pay a whole lot of money just to get the World Series trophy. That's what they really want, and they'll pay more than they than they want, really. But the point is, you you got to you got to hire these guys. If if people didn't want to see them, you know, people in this country don't like Indian music. If you had a lot of ability to play Indian music and you were in New York City, why doesn't anybody want to buy them? I'm the best there is. They love me in New Delhi, you know, but people here don't love it. So a lot depends. This is what's at the center of the values of economists is consumer sovereignty. Whatever people want is what they should get. And there shouldn't be some blue nose up there telling them what they should buy. Now, There's a, a proviso here. There's a proviso here, which is that the um, seller of the baseball services, in this case, the, 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 the batter, the outfielder, doesn't have any market power. He, he's not able to... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. extract a greater than uh, what the marginal consumer is willing to pay price out of the market. I, I wonder if we would apply the same logic to executive salaries. Would you say that? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I talk about executive salaries. I have a whole a chapter on equity and distribution of income. And uh, I think most economists think top executives, uh, there's actually studies of this looking at the top, you know, that comes out of the University of Chicago, yeah. The top economists, what do they say about this and that? So if you ask them, are top executives in the U.S. paid more than their marginal value? A majority said, yeah. Um, so, and they, the, the people who say, yeah, a lot of them say, you know, it's not a market partly because, uh, you know, the people who are stockholders and the people in the top of the people we hire aren't very I'm very careful in assessing, oh, Joe, Joe, when we give you, you know, they don't just look at what's happened in the market and how well he's done. He's a friend and they don't want to lose him and uh, they may pay him too much. So I'm open to that. I, I look at what I think is the evidence, but people who disagree with that argument say, well, you look at the people where it's all private, private equity. It's not in the market. You don't have a, so how much are they paid? More than in the market, some, a lot of them say. So how can it be just the, the stockholders are, have too little influence if where there's no market and there's no overseer who's too generous to the, to the guys who run it, they pay them even more to get the best talent. So, you know, part of the reason CEOs get so much is, is, the, is the, uh, worldwide market. You know, if you were really good at making something in, in Pittsburgh in 1800, who could you sell it to? Now you can sell it in China. Yeah, uh, this is, this you know, is so an important you, point. If you make something more efficient, you can make a whole lot more money than anybody else is making that thing. I, it's, and, it's an interesting, to me, I'm not a finance guy, but I, but I, I like these uh, issues. I mean, there's the superstar phenomenon, which you're kind of alluding to here, which is that as technology changes of communication, globalization, and so forth, the, um, the, the, uh, managerial talent can yeah. 
be exercised over a wider realm of economic activity. And the very, very best managers can compete to be uh, administering massive uh, corporate uh, uh, empires that have a global reach and will be compensated accordingly. Uh, In a world where you couldn't really... uh, uh, Sherman Rosen, the uh, the original uh, economist who wrote this paper, The Economics of Superstars, that was in the American Economic Review way back in the 70s, uh, or maybe it was the early 80s, but he observed that um, uh, if technology didn't allow that span of control, the uh, a lot of economic activity would come under the management of people who were relatively further down the queue in terms of managerial ability. Yeah. But when it's when the top managers can oversee massive enterprises, you, you don't have to go so far down the queue. And their rents are going to be very, the, the ability for them to uh, extract economic benefit from their managerial talent will be enhanced. An opera singer who has to sing to an auditorium We'll have yeah. one size of an audience, an opera singer who can record her voice and sing through high fidelity uh, yeah. uh, audio reproduction to 100 million people uh, will, will <clears throat> be much better. So that, that's, that's one point. But uh, corporate governance is an issue, too, is it not? I mean, that the boards of directors are subject to influences by management that might lead to higher salaries. And, and the mechanisms for disciplining that, like takeover... You know, the the shareholders get uh, their uh, views uh, recognized through the incentives that are created by mismanagement or overcompensated or top heavy management for somebody to come in and take over the enterprise and 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 uh, streamline it. Um, but those processes yeah. might not, not work. <laughs> well, work that's, that's obviously there are lots of costs of economic growth, and you know, it's going back to the opera singer. You know, think of all the good piano players in families. You know, often the women, but sometimes the men, often learn to play the piano. And every Saturday night, the whole family get together, maybe ask the neighbors over, because Susan was a terrific piano player. Everybody sing. Susan, you're so good. Thank you. Now nobody wants to listen to Susan. I got it right, stereo right over here. It sounds a yeah. lot better than she does. That's not quite that bad, but I mean, they're losers from economic growth. But uh, in the conclusion, I point out that you know, there's a 30-sum improvement over 1800. If you want to talk antitrust, where there was a big monopoly pro- problem, go back in 1800 and look at the at the company store, the only one within 50 miles. You know, now we we've broken they down. They can jack now. your prices up because they had a local That's monopoly. Right. What are you going to do about it? Uh, and so uh, now it's a lot better than that. Every 50, this is something Deirdre McCloskey goes over a lot. But you know, 50 years later, it's. Uh, it's, there's more competition. Now there's, you don't even have to go anywhere to have competition. You just pull up your computer, Best Buy or whatever, and see, see what you can get the same thing for. Uh, so it's hard to make the case that competition through time has gotten terrible because uh, what Lukowski says is, look at how much more uh, we have now. If you asked a college student in 1950 to come visit the, the apartment of one in now, He'd be amazed. You know, yeah. telephones. I, I remember being amazed when the, my neighbor got this one. He could walk around outside and talk on the phone. What? Yeah. Where did that guy get that? He's just showing off. It must cost a fortune. I mean, and, 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 and moreover, 
everybody has one. Now uh, everybody just has about one. everybody has a mobile phone in their hand. Just about yeah. everybody has an automobile. Just about everybody yeah. has a television yeah. set, etc. Even the poor. Yeah. Even the the poor. They're 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 not yeah. that poor that they don't have the benefit of these yeah. things. And the telephone's a whole lot better than that rich guy had back then. Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code Glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors, from Christopher Buckley to P.J. O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Let me ask you a question about incentives, because I often get this argument, sometimes from my lovely wife. My my wife, Lawan, is a Bernie Sanders left-wing Democrat, and I get this argument. I'll say incentives. I'll say you cannot extend unemployment benefits indefinitely. You have to have a a date certain termination. If it's one year, maybe in a recession, it should be 18 months. Maybe it's two years at the outside, but you cannot extend unemployment indefinitely because if you do, the the ranks of those who are uh, not looking for work and not working will swell because the incentives to work will have been undercut by extending unemployment indefinitely. She'll say, you're calling people lazy. You, 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 You... by, by saying that they'll respond to incentives, you same thing about welfare. I say you can't have the welfare benefits be too generous. Yeah. Because yeah. if you do, you'll produce more poverty. People will change their behavior. It will be yeah. affected by the and they they the, the the response is to invoke the behavioral reaction to social policy being too generous is to condemn the people who are in need of help based on some moralistic judgment about their behavior. Have you heard this argument, and how do you respond yeah, to it? Yeah, sure. And the point is, I think, ultimately, you hate the people you're giving the money to. Because, you know, I look into the uh, guy like, um, what's his name? 
Summers, not uh, Arthur. Uh, not Larry. Uh, Larry, but Arthur Summers, who... I don't know so what makes people happy, you know, and, and he, he says one of the reasons he criticizes economics, he says, you know, they're all about cost versus benefit. Cost is the labor benefits what you can spend it on. He says most people love their jobs. Most people, if they win the lottery, say they wouldn't quit their jobs. Now, that's kind of what your what your wife is saying. But I think a lot of the people who are unemployed, who would be tempted to be unemployed, are going to be miserable. That's what he also finds. You know, if, if people don't have a job, they don't have those relationships they get from ordinary, regular contact with people. 40% of Americans say they're lonely. That's amazing. And they're going to be lonely. They're not going to have enough to do. And they're going to miss seeing people and feeling that they're somehow doing important work. And he finds that even people with low-income jobs say, uh, most of them, I would keep my job even if I got a whole lot of money. Now, most, a lot of them wouldn't, or, or you wouldn't have a good argument. But I think, uh, to ask, one way to think about it is if if you, if you, instead of two weeks vacation, you could have six weeks vacation, would people say, ah, you know, I'd rather only have four. I, I really love this job and I'd miss it. That doesn't happen very much. That works for your wife, right? <laughs> I mean, or it works for you. And when you couldn't say, well, there's going to be a lot less produced then. And they're not going to think about that in the global sense, just in their own wallet. But I would say it's very easy for people to be lazy. I mean, it's, uh, that's why... Parents have to tell them so much, you got to work. You got to work for the future. You got to do the lawn because you're going to have to do something else later. You got to do your homework or you're going to be doing the lawn forever. You want to do the lawn forever? All right, you better go out and do get a good grade. Then I can tell you, then you'll be able to get something better. Uh, you know, we have to have incentives to get ordinary, nice people to do what adults think they ought to do and would make them happier in the long run. And that's why Arthur Brooks is so interesting, I think, because he says, Unemployed people, no matter how much welfare they get, are not happy people. Uh, and therefore, that's what I'd throw back to your wife. You know, and one thing I wish people were doing, good labor economists like you ought to get into it, were, uh, there were studies after welfare reform that some of them said, I know, so I read them, that the people who were on welfare reform and then got jobs were glad they got off and got jobs, even though it wasn't paying a whole lot more. If we could get that kind of evidence, then we'd know whether you or your wife are right, I think. Uh, because uh, I, I didn't read the whole literature. And maybe these, this was the odd, odd paper, but I don't think it was. I think uh, if it's true that unemployment makes people miserable, then getting a job where they feel they're doing a good job, that's another thing that makes people happy, according to Brooks. You feel I'm pretty good at my job. You don't have to have a college degree. If you're a baker and you're good at your job, Think of how many smiles you get. You got those brownies this time. Good for you. Hey, I'll have three of those, you know. All these people smiling at your good work. Uh, and he says people who, who think they're doing a good, jo good job at their job are happy. You know, statistically, he can say they're 40% more happy than people identical to them in all other ways. But they're, they're not happy with their job, and they don't think they're particularly good at it. So I think I think his work is really interesting, and uh, that would be something you and your wife should both read. I think <laughs> I think you win the argument. Arthur Brooks, I'll, I'll consider it. Uh, what do you make of nuclear power? Well, I'm not an expert, but I I make my first cut is to say. I mean, are we rational in our decision making about availing ourselves of that technology? And does economics have anything useful to say? Uh, about that question. That's that's what I'm I trying to ask. I think it does, because it, it looks at, well, what's the alternative? How many people die in coal mines? We haven't had a nuclear 
how many people have died in nuclear accidents or living near a nuclear power station? That's why that physicist wanted to find out there was only one. If the whole if the whole country lived for a year within 20 miles of a nuclear power station, one person would die. People who live in Denver far more died just from the soil. I wonder how many in Denver even know that. Um, but you know, I, I think I think we overdo it. it. It's again trying to be get things that where there's no risk. What are the alternative risks? All this pollution, all the people die from pollution. Uh, and of course, you can say, well, we don't want to, we don't need all the things we buy and so on. Well, the people who buy them think they need them. And I think they're probably right that, that a lot of the things we don't need and the most important things to life, this is what I get into more in my critique. It, you know, the psychologists also get into this. They say it's friends and family, relationships. And the worst problem we have is loneliness. 40% of Americans think we're lonely. Gives me a chance just to dig at economists. One one way that I think is important. You know, Meals on Wheels. Yes, there's a program. You take meals around a hot meal, and uh, economists say, "What is this? A whole apparatus just to give people hot meals? They give them some money? They go buy some stoffers?" And uh, it's interesting to talk to the people who deliver the hot meals. Uh, I didn't talk to them, but there was articles written about them. They say, "If you saw how happy people were when I get, get come there with a the meal." Their smiles, like, oh, Elizabeth, thank you so much. Come in and talk a while, will you? They have, some of them haven't talked to anybody in a week. Yeah, these are anybody. these are people who are shut in, not so mobile, elderly, and so. It, it uh, may really get benefits from it. It's, it's not, not just the meal deal. that that's uh, being delivered. It, it's exactly. also some social contact. Yes, exactly. That's true. <laughs> now, now, I'm sitting here thinking we're talking about incentives and markets that the healthcare sector of the U.S. Uh, economy, any economy for that matter, it's huge. I don't know, 15% of U.S. GDP, something like that. And uh, I don't see prices anywhere in uh, the decision-making about whether a surgery should be undertaken. I mean, eventually the bill will be paid because there's no free lunch, as we know. Yeah, right. But but the patient is not sitting with a calculator asking whether or not the marginal benefit and the marginal cost. The, the physician and uh, so on is making a decision. Insurance companies are making decisions about what they'll cover and what they won't. And it just strikes me that uh, there's... Uh, potential for greater efficiency and resource usage within the healthcare sector if more reliance on the price signals to make uh, healthcare decisions yeah. could, be, could be encouraged. Uh, what do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. And I think people do studies and say exactly what you do, how much of healthcare is completely wasted. Uh, you know, they do studies in this part of the country there's twice as many operations for such and such as there are down here. But what do you know? There's twice as many surgeons doing those up there. In other words, the thought that the, that there's illness and you've got to get rid of it, and everybody knows when they're ill, and every doctor knows what they will, it's not right. I mean, when the price is lower, uh, this is the, people buy more of something, and the price is next to nothing these days. Now, the problem is, what, what's the incentive of the politicians? They're going to get rid of, uh, you know, we used to kick, uh, kick is not the way the, the people would want to think about it. But, you know, think about people who've had a baby. Uh, it used to be, you keep in, in, make sure they're all right, let them get recovered a little bit, four or five days, might be fine. Now I think you're kicked out or let, told you to go because you're healthy in a day and a half. Now, when that kind of change happens, people object. And if you said deductibles have to go up because if, if people pay more, 
they won't be as quick. And there's studies that show, you know, if you move the, the college infirmary 10 minutes further away, the number of people go goes down 25%. You just yeah. can't argue that's an absolute essential that they go. They don't think it's essential. Yeah. But I think people are thinking total utility again. You know, safety, health, nothing more important. And if you're going to do something that hurts that, what are these the damn guys with the green eye shades? What are they? Economists, I'll bet. I'll bet you're talking to economists, aren't you? <laughs> when you want to make that reform. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's an outrage how much we spend on that. And it's very hard to change it because any serious change would have to mean somebody's costs go up. And... Um, People don't want to do it. That's why I think it's really, you should think long and hard about any new benefit you give most people because you're not probably not going to be able to get rid of it. If it doesn't work out or it does, uh, and there's a lot of cases, one thing economists do do at incentives is they are great in saying, you think this is helping the poor, but it's helping the rich. Think something like taxing unemployment insurance. When Reagan pr proposed that, they said, you just want to stick it to the rich. You could care, I mean, stick it to the poor. You could care less about how they live. And the economist tries to, tries to calmly say, look, taxes are played on unemployment insurance. If you make more in your employment, you get more unemployment insurance. If we taxed unemployment insurance, the rich would be hurt more than the poor because they don't have a high paying job. And they just try to get the facts out. And sometimes they're extremely useful, not always effective. By doing that, I think, um, and, and that's what something Alan Blinder, you know, pointed out at the time. He's a liberal Democrat. Reagan's a conservative Republican. He said we would all agree it's good to tax uh, unemployment insurance. Oh, let, let me ask you a question. I think we're getting to the end of our time. So your uh, new edition of your book, The Economist's View of the World, uh, is out. And it has come out now uh, in the second year of this uh, massive uh, pandemic that uh, we've all been enduring. Did you see anything in the reaction to the pandemic that you found useful as il illustrative example in the book? Or are there, is there anything from the book that you would want to, in thinking about the pandemic, you know, sort of call to the audience's attention here? Yeah, in terms of well, it's mentioned a little bit in the book, and I can't remember in which it, well, the introductory chapters it is. But yeah, I mean, obviously, part of the problem is people don't want anyone to die. And um, I have a, my son is an economist, actually, and uh, not an economist, he's a statistician, but he reads a lot of economics. And he, uh, he's very upset about this. He says, a lot of these people they say are dying from COVID are going in there with a bad heart. And nobody says, was it the heart or was it the COVID? They just say it's COVID, COVID. He thinks that the accounting is terrible and, and it would be easier to have sensible policy if we realize that the number of people dying from COVID is less than the stats say, and that a lot of people die from flu too. And we ought to be looking at, certainly by the time COVID gets down to the number of people who are dying of the flu, we ought to say, look, it's not a special thing like we've been teaching it. My sense is that's where the direction of everything's going because even the people who do everything that CDC says to do, Australia, Japan, so on, they're getting hit with a lot of COVID. They're getting, later, getting it later than the others. And there's some benefit for that. It helps the hospitals. But I think it's it, it's helpful to to the economists to say, look, I want to tell you some of the ways we could save lives, not the people who have COVID, but who are dying because of not having enough heart pumps or not having, I don't know what it would be, but you could find, I think, a whole lot of people who are dying of other things who, who would be a lot less expensive to save them. Look, I mean, I would just amplify, 
if we were to only be concerned about saving lives, if that were the only thing we should be concerned about, and there's plenty of reason that that should not be the only thing that we're concerned right. about, but even if I were supposed that were the only thing we could be concerned about, we have to recognize that some of the things we do in response to mitigating COVID might save fewer lives from the loss of COVID than they actually lose from the consequences of having done those things instead of something else we could have done. The opportunity cost in terms of lives, measured in terms of lives Even alone. Even just in terms of lives, yeah. Might, might uh, uh, militate against undertaking uh, that activity. So, uh, yeah, the plus, concept it's, it's of... Just, just kids in school, I mean, apparently... That's another, yeah. They don't learn nearly as much. It's going to affect a whole generation. Uh, Eric Hanischek, the economist at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, has estimated uh, many, many hundreds of billions of dollars of foregone lifetime earnings yeah. from the school closures, which you could set against the medical benefit from it. And it, it's a pretty expensive way to save human lives, closing closing the schools, according to that kind of an analysis. Yeah. The kind of analysis economists will bring to your attention you don't want to hear it, and so you, you know, you you tell us to shut up and you call us names, uh, but we're we're just trying to make rational uh, input to public decision making. And Stephen Rhodes's book, uh, "The Economist's View of the World," is a boon to that enterprise. So thanks a lot, Stephen, for coming on the Glenn Show. I appreciate the class to talk about it, Glenn, very much. I enjoy your show, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs>